1: Good morning, everybody, wherever this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend morning finds you. I hope you are cozy. I hope you are well. I am grateful to be in this sanctuary this morning with Eric Shackelford and Don and with Jonathan and with Rako Odalane because otherwise I am here completely alone. Mari Magaloni is one of our worship associates today. She's recorded a beautiful reflection and Carmen Barsity was supposed to be here in person, but I believe the way she described it is she got the dreaded second pink line on the antigen test. She's so far just looking like she's has sort of the symptoms of a cold, but we hold her and everybody at Faithful Fools in our hearts in this strange time that we're in full of surprises. I wanna thank also our incredible musicians who are banished downstairs for the time being, but are producing gorgeous music for us this morning. For Mark Sumner, who is down there with, um, for Nancy Munn and Brielle Marina Nielsen and Ben Rudiek Gould and Richard Fay. So grateful that they're here. And also to Kelvin Jones, who opened our building this morning, our newest member of the custodial team here and the building facilities team. We're really grateful for him and Joe Chapeau on chat, who will be answering all your questions and helping you get oriented. If you're new, especially a welcome to this larger live stream community that we are part of on this incredible morning, another day of life handed over to us end of a week. cusp of another. I invite us to begin worship and since you're home you can sing out loud and proud we're gonna sing an incredible American gathering hymn it's in our teal hymnal but you have it in your order of service hymn number 1046 shall we gather at the river and we'll do so right after I light this candle in honor of all of you as we have since the beginning of COVID recognizing that we may not be together in body, but we are here together in this space, in one worshiping beloved community in spirit. Let's worship together. I invite you to say with me the words of our chalice lighting. They're in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. If you are joining us for the first time again, a special welcome, and I would just invite you to make it easier for yourself to follow along to download or open up the order of service so you can follow along during the service, sing the hymns that are printed inside. There's also available to you a chance to fill out a connection form which will allow us to send to your email boxes a link to the order service and the live stream every week, as well as our Wednesday flame, which is our set of announcements of things that are coming up in the week or the weeks ahead. Please look and take advantage of anything in the flame that interests you. There's always great programming coming up in the life of this congregation. We've gotten really good at building community and continuing to ask and answer the deepest questions of our lives and find ways to serve us and all of it online. And also, I just call your special attention to the Zoom coffee hour, which is a chance for us to connect right after service. So please, please switch over to Zoom and meet some folks get to know them a little better. So when you show up some Sunday morning in person, you'll know some faces and names and already be connected. I want to just call out one particular announcement this morning and also explain our offering. The announcement is that as many know who have been part of this congregation for over 30 years. This community has been one of a handful of communities that has hosted the winter shelter in the city of San Francisco. We will be adding a week this year to support the city's efforts due to some other complications related to COVID. We weren't able to do it last year because of COVID, but this year it will, re- it will resume here at church February 6th to 26th. And as many of you know, this is a time when people will enter. This year, it will be men and women. Formerly, it's mostly been men until last year. And they will sleep here, but we will also provide them, and other communities will help provide dinner and breakfast. So what we need in particular, are people to help cook and serve breakfast and dinner, which has been a favorite volunteer activity by a lot of members of our community. There are some additional restrictions this year because of COVID, so we're modifying the food service to try and keep everybody safe. We're still gonna be doing five breakfasts a week and we need volunteers to help cook them. That commitment is from five to seven in the morning on any Monday through Friday during that period, February 6th to 26th. So if you're interested, there's head chefs to show you what to do, but you show up and prepare the food in the kitchen, and then others from the winter shelter will help take it out to our guests. Please email Hannah Hart or Gordon Sharifinski There's gonna be a sign-up link being posted in the chat, hopefully as I speak, so you can sign up, but also just reach out to info at UUSF, info at UUSF.org if you need any links to make possible your volunteering, and thank you in advance. It's a great way to start the day. You actually can claim joy and service and connection by 7 a.m., and I don't know about you, but that's a pretty amazing accomplishment in my weeks to be able to do that. I also want to just call everyone's attention in advance to the offering this morning. As many of you probably read in the papers this week and last, the King family has been asking folks to support voting rights as part of this year's Martin Luther King Jr. celebration. And so our offering this week will entirely go to the Voting Rights Lab, which is a nonpartisan organization that brings advocacy and policy and legislative expertise to the work of securing voting rights. So when we have our time for offering, or if you wanna do it now, you can go to the online Vanco donation site, just pick special offering and write this date, today's date, the 16th of January, and give your gift or send in a check. Just let us know in the memo section what it's for as we live into the request being made and a one, I think, that speaks to our values deeply too. So that will be our offering this morning. Thank you in advance for your generosity. That concludes our special invitations for the morning. And so I invite us to step more deeply into this hour, centering ourselves in it with breath, meditatively held, and framed through our meditation on breathing
2: when i breathe in i'll breathe in peace when i breathe out. All-
1: to say with me our promises, one version of the promises that we say to each other, our covenant, the words in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom and to help one another. us into a time of centering prayer, followed at the end by some shared silence. Pulling the thread through from last week's service, I begin our prayer. God, not God's name, but our name for a mystery beyond knowing, a hope not beyond hoping. For the strength that comes from within, but also shows up sometimes unbidden. For the groundbreaking joy that carries us through And the expansive connection that lets us know that we're not alone, connected, precious, loved, welcomed by spirit into this world to unfold at our own bidding, lured into being fully unapologetically ourselves. We give thanks for this day, we give thanks Another dawn breaking with light, possibilities strewn about us like sunbeams catching on rocks and buildings, and all that is part of this corner of the world we claim as our own. We hold in our hearts all those struggling, even and especially ourselves, those struggling with the COVID blues, for those whose losses are fresh or just rise up fresh in us and perhaps always will, for those we have lost, for all that we miss and mourn, in dreams of healing and wholeness for ourselves and others. We especially hold in our hearts all who are sick with COVID from the exhaustion of caring for those with COVID or living homeschooling and all the other challenges in the face of it. And for all those who are sick in body or spirit in some other way that you may be held in love. For those in Congregation Beth Israel in Colleyville, recovering from yesterday's attack safe in body, but perhaps not feeling safe in spirit and for all our Jewish siblings around the country, We hold in our hearts the full legacies of this day, this weekend, the hurt, the evil, the struggle of racism, but especially this day and this weekend, too, the reminder of all the saints and martyrs of our nation's work for larger love and justice. All who have lived this long struggle, been part of it for resistance on the road to beloved community. We pray in gratitude for all that has been and will be that is moving us forward through its insistent, hopeful, inspired vision all those who seem to emerge called out from amidst the crowd of every hamlet and city and county and state and church and nation to lead, who invite others in their words or just in their deeds to walk with them In our own small or brave and commanding ways, may we count ourselves among them, rise to meet their call issued from the street corners or the simple organizing offices of today and heard also in the voices that come out from the cloud of witnesses of those who have gone before that hover around us We hold all of this in this hour together. And in this moment, let us hold space and silence also for each of us to call out in our own home or in our own hearts anything else we want to offer up to be held in love. by this community in all the places it reaches and the network between us that defies the limits of space. I invite you now to hold out your own prayers in name, in word, in silent whisperings of your heart. Bound in our hearts, in prayer and in love, may we lift one another up in our days, easing the tide of human suffering, healing, and holding one another howsoever we can. Amen.
0: Oh no!
1: I am not Carmen Varsity, though I would be proud to be her. (laughs) But these are her words, her reflection for this morning. Sometime last year I gave a reflection in which I began with, I am white. I think I began by repeating it a few times to add a little weight to it I can't remember all that I said in that reflection, but I find myself needing to say it again. I am white. And what it means to have white skin is something I need to pay attention to. This past November, Selena Lane began working with us at the Faithful Fools. Some of you know Selena, she was the director of Up on Top's after school program for five years. The knowledge and connections Selena brings in terms of access to city resources and contacts to get people into housing or address issues of eviction, as well as making everyone capable and accounting in the work required is invaluable to our work of accompaniment and advocacy at Faithful Fools. Though I have been doing this work in San Francisco for more than 24 years, I am learning a great deal from her. Within the first weeks of her working with us, Selena asked if we had lanyards with ID badges. In her short time with us, she was already engaged in complex accompaniment situations with a couple who was moving from an SRO into a new supportive housing unit coordination and collaboration with management in both buildings was necessary. I was curious about her question as we never used ID badges as faithful fools, but certainly we could make one for her if she would like. A few days later, Selena and I went together to another supportive housing unit to assist a woman who'd been referred to us as she was at risk of eviction. Selena was the one who was the main lead and had set up the meeting. Whenever we can, we go two by two as faithful fools, especially when situations are more complex and a bit overwhelming. It was in walking into the building and then later, as we were conversing with the building manager and her caseworkers that I noticed, we were not equally received. We both are generally confident and capable in the work we do. And either one of us could engage with the managers, but when I noticed that there was a deference to me, I stepped back. I had to check myself at that moment. Did I put myself forward? Did I unconsciously put myself in the customary place of taking the lead? Did I unconsciously... Hmm. We walked into the building together, partners in this mission. Who was conscious of all the dynamics in those few moments? I'm not sure. Selena carried on without missing a beat, exchanging the necessary information, and we left with a commitment to return to assist the woman needing assistance. That night, I woke up around 1 a.m., and The first words that flashed through my mind were, my white skin is my lanyard, my ID badge. I had obviously been working out in my sleep Selena's request for an ID badge, as well as our experience of the afternoon before. In all of my years of working with people and having to interact with management and case managers of all kinds in all settings, I have not needed a badge to justify my presence or receive answers to questions as I have assisted people. My white skin has been my assumed past. I will not ever know what it is to walk through the world as my colleagues do who are rejected or violated for being black and Asian or not fitting a gender norm, but I can have empathy. Empathy being the ability to understand and share the feelings of another as a woman and a woman-founded organization, I do keenly know the pain and struggles of existing in a very white male structure world, being excluded, dismissed, considered naive. And I'm well aware that there is work that must be done to turn empathy and awareness into action, for this is not an isolated incident. When I shared this reflection with Selena, she listed off a number of other incidents of being stopped from entering places this past week that I had not been aware of. I call myself and all of us, not only to notice but to name aloud what we notice, to pay close attention to our own accustomed, or intentional ways that keep others out of buildings and rooms, out of meetings and decision-making processes, and insist that we correct our ways. For as Dr. King said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Heron's, Carmen's reflection.
3: Ramos, worship associate. As you may know, I'm first-generation Mexican-American. My family lives in South Texas. To our great joy, about 12 years ago, my oldest and youngest brother's families each had a baby girl born three months apart. Besides my son, they are their abuelita's only grandchildren, and they are the light of our lives. My two brothers live close to one another in a neighborhood near an excellent school that my nieces attend. My oldest brother, a teacher and writer, is about to retire and was considering the idea of moving to a new house with more space for everyone. But the current living situation is ideal, so instead of moving, it was decided that it would be better to stay where they are and expand the house by adding an office. As they live in a historical section of town, they knew that building codes would be strict. They made sure to do their research and pulled up the deed to the house. In addition to building restrictions, this is what they found in the deed. It states, this sale and conveyance is made, however, subject to the following covenants and restrictions, which form a part of the consideration for this conveyance. One, that neither the grantee nor any subsequent owner of said property shall sell or lease the same to any person of Mexican or Negro blood except as domestic servants. Number two states the dimensions and placements allowed for any building uh, erected on the property. Number three, the grantee for himself, his heirs and assigns, agree to the above and foregoing conditions and restrictions, and further agree that in the event that any such conditions and restrictions are violated with the owner's consent, that the title to this particular lot or lots upon which said violation is made shall revert to and become the property of the grantor herein, his heirs and assigns. The original owner is named. How is it that this language has never been removed over the years? We can laugh with incredulity at its brazenness, but the reality is that, outrageous as it is, this language lives in the deed to my brother's house. But we can say, don't worry about it, it's 2022 and the 1968 Civil Rights Act, the Fair Hous- Housing Act, and the Supreme Court, Shelley versus Kramer, took care of that but look at what happened to the Voting Rights Act in 2013. Look at what's happening right now to Roe versus Wade. Are the foundations of fair housing law and president also subject to the whims of political climate? The uncovering of the deeds sickening covenant is not our first encounter with systemic racism, of course, but experience doesn't soften the blow No matter how prepared we try to be, it's impossible to have our guard up all the time. This time it assaulted my family while we were dreaming of the future. Maybe that's racism's superpower, the cynical ability to identify the sacred paths people travel when their hearts are laden with hope in order to ambush them. I wrote a poem about this, it's called Under the Floorboards. Our home is haunted by ghosts who vow to hate us in perpetuity. Their disdain for us so fundamental, so absolute, it is stored in the deed to the house like a strand of putrid DNA, like a curse. The ghosts are angry. They are wild and real and strong as they were in life. When our guard is down, when we sing our children to sleep, they pounce from dark corners, scratching, biting, screaming their hate. They follow us everywhere. I've seen them at the market. They haunt our schools, our hospitals, the bank. They sit at the pews in church. You tell me you don't believe in ghosts. You say you've never seen one. I tell you that you have. They manifest as empty spaces, gaps, where I and mine have been omitted. Turn out the lights. Let your eyes grow accustomed to the dark. Quiet your voice, let yourself be still, then, when you are nothing but a beating heart, whisper my name, you'll see, they are relentless.
2: The mountain, because you ask me to up over the clouds to where the sky is blue, I could see. See sure. you. A oh.
1: You know that song by Bonnie Raitt, The Angels from Montgomery? I feel like we have the angels in (laughs) McConjury. I'm so grateful. Thank you all. Some of us this month as part of the ministers book group are reading Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison's classic of the American Canon published in 1952 for which he won the National Book Award for Fiction in 1953. In reading about him, I found out that he was the Albert Schweitzer Professor of Humanities from 1970 to 1980 at NYU. Notable for two things. One, Albert Schweitzer was the humanitarian doctor who was also a member of the UU Church of the Larger Fellowship, so connected to us in our religious movement. But also what struck me is that Ellison's time at NYU overlapped the years when I first moved to New York City and lived just a block from the heart of the NYU campus at Washington Square Park. Something about the sense that I probably walked by him or found ourselves in the same corner market was amazing to me. A reminder of how much of the classic and central books and conversations on race have overlapped with our lives, yours and mine, the chapters. Written in 1952, Invisible Man is in part so powerful still that many people have been calling and saying how grateful they are to be reading it, many again Because of how contemporary the book is and often that feeling of something being still contemporary in a novel is to its credit. But with this book, the fact that it feels contemporary and particularly in its assessment of race and the way it affects and infects the American psyche, it feels heavy and dispiriting. You know what I mean? Behold, a walking zombie, a character who is mad like the fool in Shakespeare's plays are mad, says, in other words, one of the wisest and most clear-eyed of the bunch in the moment. The man, when he says this, he's speaking to the protagonist of the book, another black man, one intentionally left unnamed throughout the work. Behold, the madman says already, (laughs) he's learned to repress not only his emotions, but his humanity. He's invisible, a walking personification of the negative, the most perfect achievement of your dreams, sir, the madman says, pointing to a white, wealthy philanthropist. And already by that point in the book, not even a hundred pages in, you have seen from the inside all the ways that the unnamed protagonist is pushed to be invisible, divorced from himself, in order to survive, in part. That invisibility, It's how someone I love used to say it was at the suburban train station near where he lived. A person of color, he said, it flabbergasted him how on so many mornings people didn't seem to see him, white people, how they'd walk into him. And then one day commuting at the same time I saw it, a well-dressed suburban professional white woman walked right in front of him. I mean, so close, I thought he could probably smell her shampoo. And it was at once so incredible and so appalling and so egregious. Even now when I picture that moment, which I still can, I thought of how it would make me want to shove the woman or pull her up into my face and ask what in God's name she thinks she's doing on this spacious platform. But also how Ellison writes in 1952, it's when you feel like that out of resentment, you begin to bump people back. And let me confess, you feel that way most of the time. You ache with the need to convince yourself that you do exist in the real world, that you're a part of all the sound and anguish, and you strike out with your fists, you curse, and you swear to make them recognize you, and alas, It is seldom successful. Seldom successful because of all the other reinforcing norms and behaviors and structures we have that reinforce the root cause, right? And the end result, huge blinders between you and seeing one another's humanity. Poor stumblers, Ellison writes. Neither of you can see the other. History is not history. That's the theme of the service, right? Ellison's 1952 version, pulling forward, threading through the present like the deed to Mari's brother's house with that restrictive covenant, In the one sense, just a few words on paper, but in the other like finding a body buried in the basement, the sullying of the grace and protective veneer of anything you'd call home, welcome, safe, We know that history is not history. Heaven knows we've been talking about it a lot as a nation. Some think that the current conversation, I mean, it's happening all over the place, but a big piece of it, that if you wanted to find a point where it started, that it started at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, Charleston South Carolina. Mother Emmanuel, as the church is known, because it's the oldest African Methodist Episcopal Church in the South. With a long history of being part of the civil rights movement. How it all maybe began on June 15th, 2015. A group of people gathered poured over scripture, sacred scripture in a Bible study when a white man whose website was filled with white supremacist and Confederate war glorifying imagery and words entered into the church. And when he was done, nine members of that community were dead, others injured. And among the dead was the senior pastor who also happened to be, as you may recall, the state senator Clementa C. Pinckney. At the time, it was one of the two deadliest mass shootings in America at a place of worship, but since then it has been surpassed twice, including the one at a Pittsburgh synagogue tree of life that I know many of us were thinking of yesterday as we held our breath It was following these murders, you may recall, at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church that the South Carolina General Assembly finally voted to remove the Confederate flag from the state capitol grounds. It was this moment, the Southern Poverty Law Center believes, was the catalyst to push to remove Confederate symbols across the nation. New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu would follow with his administration removing four such Confederate statues that he said, quote, celebrate a fictional sanitized Confederacy. Amen. And go on to point out the obvious, not that these statues were in fact glorifying some beautiful way of life, but quote, After the Civil War, these statues were a part of that terrorism as much as burning a cross on someone's lawn. Amen. Some of them had to be removed at night, remember, with the workers wearing ski masks and other things to protect their identities, to keep them safe during and after. According to the Washington Post, 36 monuments were removed in 2017. year of the Charleston Massacre. Not everyone was on board for the work of healing, though. I'm sure you remember also another date around this time, August 12, 2017. When folks gathered to protest one such statue, one of pro-slavery general Robert E. Lee, that was going to be taken down in Charlottesville, Virginia. And so hundreds of neo-Nazis, white nationalists and Ku Klux Klan members gathered in what was one of the largest white supremacist rallies in US history one that also ended in violence as one white supremacist man in a car mowed down counter-protesters ending in many injuries in a horrific moment, the images of which none of us will forget, and the death of one such counter-protester, Heather Heyer. Strangely, after that, There was actually a lull in 2018 and 2019, during which, get this, only eight monuments to the Confederacy were removed from public places in America. In 2019, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who's now doing a report periodically under its Whose Heritage Project, noted, Three years after the Charleston Massacre, 1747 Confederate monuments, place names, and other symbols are still in public spaces, both in the South and across the nation. This includes 780 monuments, more than 300 of which are in Georgia, Virginia, or North Carolina, a hundred and three public K through 12 schools and three colleges named for Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, or other Confederate icons, 80 counties and cities named for Confederates, nine observed state holidays in five states and 10 military bases. All the memorials in the United States valorizing the Confederacy, a secessionist government that waged war to preserve white supremacy and the enslavement of millions of people, they write, amen. More recently, though, spurred by the murder of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, the effort to remove these statues has been renewed, and in 2020, 94 were taken down. Sometimes temporary counter-monuments went up, experimentally erected, like after Floyd's murder, CNN reported about a hologram of George Floyd that was cast over a defaced statue of Lee in Richmond, Virginia. And there is talk about what permanently can go up in their place. Acknowledging the power of monuments and choosing as a nation to think about how we will remake them for future generations. In the 1981 introduction to a reprint of his book, Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison wrote, quote, there is no hiding place. No, because what is commonly assumed to be past history is actually as much a part of the living present as William Faulkner insisted. Furtive, implacably, implacable and tricky, it inspirits both the observer and the scene observed artifacts, manners and atmosphere. and it speaks even when no one wills to listen. Which is to say, history is not history. It is a restrictive covenant written in black ink and hatred at the bottom of a house deed. right? It is found in an unguarded moment, etched into the foundations of what you'd hoped was your dream home, but reminded, resides still in a nation on menacing ground. History is not history, right? It's the lanyard that you need to wear to try and be heard and seen despite all of your qualifications and expertise, though none of that will break through the diminishment that white skin would give you free of charge, no qualifications necessary, irrevocable right of birth. History is monuments to hate and evil that have to be taken down at night. It's synagogues and churches with histories of liberation, places people who are diminished in the world find resilience and reminders of their true value, God-given inherent worth and dignity, but are held hostage in and shot under attack. And maybe it's also, isn't it also, the woman at the suburban train station in her fancy shoes and pearl earrings who violates her space as if you didn't have any, because to be honest, she doesn't see you still, and how that marks the beginning of your day, reminding you of who you are to those who still disproportionately shape this nation world we live in, unexamined biases reinforced in a thousand filaments that bind us, even if we will not wish to hear them, as Ellison says, that bind us tooth and claw, heart and soul. Ibram Kendi writes, in 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. admitted, quote, We've had it wrong and mixed up in our country, and this has led Negro Americans in the past to seek their goals through love and moral suasion, devoid of power. And Frederick Douglass wrote, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. When Mari and I were checking the history of restrictive covenants, trying to understand whether and how her brother and we were protected against them, all of us as a nation, we had to reach out to a lawyer, to Rochelle Fortier-Wadibia, to help us unpack it. And in the debate, we were wondering, are we protected by the Supreme Court ruling of Shelley versus Kramer or the Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act of 1968? that was passed after King was murdered. But then I thought about it, and in a larger sense, it didn't really matter, did it? I mean, whether it's one or the other, both can be undermined by those who are put in power, either in Congress, who I think can remove legislation that has been put in place, or who are put in the Supreme Court by a president who's elected, and those people in the court, those justices can reverse precedent, can't they? So to Mari's point, just as we're learning in the debate about Roe v. Wade, the right to bodily reproductive self-determination by women, a right, a protection can be given, but also perhaps taken away. So not surprising then that King's family has asked that on this particular weekend, tomorrow in particular, that there be a call for no celebration without legislation. They're arguing that Americans not honor this day, but honor King through action to protect the right to vote, because of all it protects, Martin Luther King III, who's chairman of the Drum Major Institute, the nonprofit started by his father, said in a statement to the Washington Post this week, quote, we're directly calling on Congress not to pay lip service to my father's ideals without doing the very thing that would protect his legacy, pass voting rights legislation. The demonstrators are demanding that the Senate pass the Freedom to Vote Act. You know, I know there are folks who say that politics and religion shouldn't overlap and Sunday morning isn't a place for talking about legislation. And I I see the point, the attention we want to pay to all that. But legislation protects and enshrines all kinds of biases, right? And gives all kinds of evil the sheen of legitimacy and the weight of institutional enforcement So religion, our religion, lives or doesn't in part in Caesar's realm. And the cost today, what we're talking about, of course, is human invisibility, suffering, a culture that sanctions hate. And nothing less than the soul of a nation, still, Why? Because history is not history. Not yet. May we make it so. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Weekend, everybody. Blessings of the vision and the work. Amen. Now, beloveds, in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.